if I go back to my role as a physiotherapist, I would have people coming in and telling me about their backs for maybe 20 seconds and telling me about their lives for 20 minutes. You know, the influence of what's going on in life really does seem to self out in a, in a number of different health conditions. In my experience, it was musculoskeletal, but there'll be many other conditions that the challenges of life will influence. You know, life is tough, but we can deal with toughness if we're recovering effectively. So it's looking at the balancing act of life. If you don't stop and create the odd moments to think, how am I doing and where am I at? To be honest with you, the rest of life becomes potluck. Have you ever had a really stressful day and wondered what kind of impact it had on your health? More importantly, is there anything you can do today that would improve your ability to have a better day tomorrow? In this episode, Simon Shepherd explains why understanding your heart rate variability may actually be the piece of data that could help you answer these questions. Co-founder of Optima Life, physiotherapist at Lord's Cricket Grounds, speaker and innovator. Simon specializes in combining technology and coaching to help organizations and individuals become more resilient, productive, and purposeful. With decades of experience in human optimization, Simon lectures internationally on a variety of health and performance-related subjects. I met Simon several years ago when I was first introduced to heart rate variability training and how our brain-heart connection influences our ability to cope with stress and recover from illness. HRV training has applications not just for the high-performance athlete, as we will soon find out in this episode. Please go to the show notes to find out about how you can connect with Simon and learn more about HRV. What I'd like to start with is your background. What got you into this, this field that you found yourself in in the last couple of years? You've been in the business of human performance, optimizing human performance for many years. I think you founded Optima Life a couple of years ago. You work with athletes across a wide spectrum of disciplines. You work with corporates and executives. What got you? What was the road that got you to this point? And how did that all happen? Well, the first thing is that actually it's probably, it's over 10 years ago now <clears throat> that we started off Optima Life. And um, I guess time flies when you're enjoying yourself. But if I, if I rewind the clocks to the start of my career, I'm a physiotherapist and I, I've been very fortunate to have worked in um, elite level sport for the last 30 years. So I've been sort of head of health, well-being, and uh, sports science at Lord's Cricket Ground. Uh, for the last three decades. I also ran a physiotherapy business and all of a sudden I saw that stress was overtaking back pain as the biggest cause from absence from work. And as someone who's probably made their living with people being away from their desks due to bad backs and bad necks, I thought I better sort of check in on the on, on the competition. So there was some research done into stress and there was a little footnote at the bottom of the paper that came back to me where uh, a colleague had just said, take a look at this. And the, this was a technology from Finland called First Beat, and that looks at heart rate variability. And I looked at it and I went, wow, if that does what it says on the tin, all of a sudden I can do my job better. And uh, I guess I got intrigued by how data can open up uh, some really powerful conversations with people about a whole host of aspects of their life. The first time we met was probably, I think it was at a corporate, at a company, and that was also my first introduction to first beat, to heart, 
heart rate variability. And yes, data does make a difference. When we can start quantifying, we start taking things seriously. Until then, it's all sort of, it's a bit fudgy. But when you can sit with a person after they've had a, a device attached to them for a few days and show them what's going on in their bodies, they start to take things more seriously. So Let's jump into what heart rate variability is. Bear in mind, you know, the people listening to this podcast, probably there's a, there's a good number of people who've never heard of this. We all know, you know, where your heart rate should be when you're exercising, which is also up for debate, and what it should be when you're sleeping. Um, but what is HRV? Well, I guess in very simple terms, heart rate variability is the pattern of your heart rate. And I, I, I always sort of try and explain it by thinking of someone who has a heart rate of 60. So when they have a heart rate of 60 and they might be stressed or aroused or excited, the heart will beat one beat a second, almost like a metronome. Uh, that's called a state of sympathetic dominance. When they're called as a cucumber, relaxed, uh, they might be releasing different hormones, their recovery hormones. They still have this heart rate of 60, but their heart will beat quickly for five or 10 seconds, then slowly for five or 10 seconds, quickly for five or 10, then slowly. So heart rate variability is this analysis of the pattern of the beat of your heart. And that is a way of us to, uh, that's a way of us understanding the autonomic nervous system. Okay, so it's not about um, your heart rate going too fast or too slow, but the overall consistency of gaps and beats rather than just pace of the heart rate. Yeah, absolutely. You could have someone with a heart rate of uh, 85, but still have reasonable heart rate variability. You could have someone with a heart rate of 60 and have not such good heart rate variability. So the variability is actually more telling when it comes to resilience and health. Well, I find it more telling. And I think the other thing to sort of add here, Nikki, is it's really important to, to put this point in. Um, people will be wired slightly differently. So when looking at heart rate variability, I also think it's really important to look at intra-individual changes. So that means what's going on from you to you to you to you and not comparing apples with oranges. It's not comparing you know, two totally different people, two totally different readings. It has much more benefit if we're looking at what's the change, what changes we see within you. How, what implications does HRV have for health? And I'm not going to put you on the spot here. It's just in your, your experience. You know, when you're dealing with somebody who's got an autoimmune issue or has always got neck and back pain, when you start working from a, <clears throat> a variability point of view, how, how do you think um, sort of psychosomatically that starts impacting their physical health? I think it can impact, I think it does impact significantly. So if I go back to my role as a physiotherapist, I would have people coming in and telling me about their backs for maybe 20 seconds and telling me about their lives for 20 minutes. You know, the influence of what's going on in life really does seem to itself out in a, in a number of different health conditions. In my experience, it was musculoskeletal, but there'll be many other conditions that the challenges of life will influence. Mm -hmm. So, so how does it work? If somebody wanted to go along and do, I know that you can, you can download apps that measure HRV, but I don't know if they're that accurate. I know you, you use the, the bodyguard. What would the normal person listening to this be able to do to start understanding and using HRV as a tool more efficiently? Okay, well, there, there, there are two different types to it. So let's think of the devices that can provide some sort of 
a diagnostic overview of, of where you're at. And that's where I would use, would use first beat in the bodyguard. We would wire people up for somewhere between three and five days, typically, um, while they're wearing a monitor, which is a little device that's worn on the chest with two ECG electrodes. Whilst they're wearing that monitor, they keep a diary. That's typically done through their, their smartphone. And then the data is analyzed uh, and a report produced that brings together the diary markers, i.e. the story and the context of that person's life and puts it alongside their physiology. And they'd be able to get a real insight into how well they're sleeping, how well they're exercising, um, the stresses and strains of everyday life. And in many ways, I think heart rate variability is useful if we want to appraise how balanced someone is. You know, life is tough but we can deal with toughness if we're re recovering effectively. So it's looking at the balancing act of life. I found that part really um, so amusing when I, when I used the device myself to, to keep track of what was going on and what was influencing the discord in the HRV reading and the things that came up. I remember distinctly, I was watching an episode of Game of Thrones and damn, that threw everything out. It was so funny to see how the mind-body connection, how you can't, I mean, we know this in theory, but when you start measuring and quantifying, you start becoming more self-aware. And I think maybe that's, that's actually the, the biggest key here is to, to really hit home is self-awareness. Yeah, I agree. And we're all different and we all react differently. It's interesting what you said about Game of Thrones there. Um, okay. I do quite a bit of work with people and they sort of say they want to have a look and see what happens if they're watching TV or they're on their phone or, or computer last thing at night. They all sort of know deep down that it's probably not good for them. And they all sort of, sort of refer to the fact that it's sort of blue light and that stimulates the pineal gland and I release dopamine, etc. Mm. But what I'm finding more and more, it, it's not just been on your computer or been on the TV, it's the, it's the content that you're watching. So if you're watching something really light and amusing, we often see people um, in a pretty good place. But uh, you know, if you're watching something like Killing Eve and just seen 10 people be murdered in all sorts of horrific manners just before bedtime, then um, yeah, things are slightly different. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, the brain doesn't know the difference between an event that's, you know, remote and on a television. It still creates a stress chemistry. So yeah, being aware of that and also, you know, what I find more and more, perhaps just because I, I do have a young child, is the exposure, you know, what these kids are exposed to and what that's actually doing from a brain heart entrainment point of view is quite, um, it's startling, you know, and I don't think we pay enough attention to that as parents. Yeah, I agree. It reminds me, we did an experiment about, um, this was in the early days, it must have been about eight or nine years ago. And it was, it was an experiment for a TV program, but they ended up getting 40 children in a room and 20 of the children were asked to play, uh, I think it was, it was FIFA or something for, for, for 20 minutes. And the other half of the room were asked to do some gaming, which involved, you know, one of these shootout games and, you know, nuke the whole of the Western seaboard or something like that. It, it was sort of a violent yeah. game. And they were mo we monitored people's heart rates and heart rate variability. And what was interesting, immediately after they'd done that, whilst both sets of children saw their heart rates uh, go up when they were being aroused by playing the game, they were then shown some uh some footage for some news footage and it was it was sort of I, I think it was sort of gaza strip or something not not great the ones who've been playing fifa 
their heart rates remained up and they were actually aroused even more. The ones who'd been playing the shoot up game, actually they were desensitized and their heart rates came down. So it's interesting the the comment you made there about the children and, and what they get exposed to. You know, that is, that is actually quite frightening because the desensitization part is quite frightening, especially, you know, nowadays where, especially in South Africa, where carrying a gun is commonplace and we've almost become desensitized to the nonsense that goes on from day to day. I would assume that is like a safety mechanism in the brain that when you say desensitization, but surely somewhere in the physical body, that trauma is still going to be stored. And that might be part and parcel of where disease comes from. Yeah. uh, Highly, highly possible. Highly possible. So, I mean, you work with a lot of corporates with a lot of executive healthcare um, and the big buzzword at the moment is resilience. It's almost become a bit cliched as, as cliched as wellness. What is resilience in, in your mind? And how do we cultivate resilience on a day-to-day practice? Yeah, it's one of those real buzzwords, isn't it? I mean, I, I always refer to it as the ability to deal with challenges quickly. And I, I think that word quickly is an important one. People who have the skill sets uh, that relate to resilience, our ability to, you know, it's not about being robust, which is something very different to resilience. It's not about sort of just continually taking everything on board. It's about, yeah, if, if I do trip up or if I do fall down or I'm, I haven't had a great moment, how do I recover effectively and how do I recover quickly? And I think having a process around resilience is something that I spend a lot of time talking to businesses about. In your experience, I mean, how resilient are people in the average multinational corporation at the moment? This year has been a challenge of note internationally. Do you find that people are getting better at managing their state or worse? What is your feeling? Are we, are we getting somewhere or are we sliding back into this dark hole? I, I think what's been interesting for me when working people over the last six months is people have either shifted to one end of the spectrum or the other. I don't think there's sort of this I'm average at being resilient, which is what I would have said a year ago, is so common. Some people have really, really improved and some people have actually really, really deteriorated. And it would be lovely to be able to say, I know which sector or I know what type of person, but I don't think I can do that. Yeah, it is very personal. I've always wondered what it is that makes a person resilient or, you know, some people can live with the most incredible, unfortunate situation, but they can still find a way to persevere and get on with life while other people will just fold at the slightest, you know, provocation. And I don't know if there is a way to say, well, you know, it's upbringing or it's training or it is just probably genetic. Is it, is it environment? I don't know the answer. I'd love to be able to, to really break that down and model it because that would be incredible to, to be able to teach people how to bounce back. Yeah, I think what well, the, the underlying facts is that, that would be really interesting. Is there a genetic component? Um, is, is there an experiential component, you know, in our development as children? I mean, in terms of the training that, that, that I look with people, I try and introduce them to a pretty simple model. And it's a model that always starts with recognition. If you don't stop and create the odd moments to think, how am I doing and where am I at? To be honest with you, the rest of life becomes potluck. 
Yeah, I mean, that comes down to self-awareness, but we're not taught that in school. We're not taught to, to sort of calibrate to what's really going on in our heads and our bodies. So it's up to, to people like you who, you know, when an organization is having a crisis to bring in and say, how long are people? Have you ever given any thought to, to what's actually going on when you're in that moment? And you're so right. It's about self-awareness, but uh, unfortunately, it's just not something that's maybe nowadays it's becoming more common, but it's just not something that's taught. And it's, I think it's one of those critical survival tools in the 21st century. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think it's one of the critical leadership tools of the 21st century as well. Um, you know, the, the, the really successful leaders that I work with, most of them have this ability to be aware of themselves, aware of the people around them, and aware of their organization. It's not luck, though. They, they invest in the time to create that awareness. Sure. So would you, in just in your experience, this is not, um, you know, fact, but just in your, your, yeah, just your experience that people who have a higher quotient of, say, EQ would probably be able to manage or entrain their HRV a lot easier than people who have got absolutely or have no interest in developing an EQ? Possibly. I think there'll be some who I would consider have high EQ, but don't necessarily uh, are not always great at looking after themselves. The, the other thing that I'm, that I'm starting to sort of get people to think about is, is as we go through these layers of cues from IQ to EQ is, is this a new, newer concept of AQ. How, how good are you at adaptive intelligence? I just think the world around us is changing at such a great rate and our exposure to that change through uh, you know, communication devices is, is instant and, and non-stop. We either expect of ourselves or our people expect of us and those people could be our family, it could be our, our, our work colleagues, it could be yeah. our friends. Almost this instantaneous reaction and, and sometimes we've got to be able to adapt and we've got to have acceptance around adaptance. I think that's something that we've got to get better at as a world. You know, I'm based in the UK. The number of changes direction the UK government has taken in the last six months to do with COVID is, is considerable. And, you know, the ability to adapt does determine the, the, the longevity of a species. I mean, that is apparently mm. why humans have sustained you know, existence on Earth is because we have been able to adapt. But the adaption process up until I sort of think the Industrial Revolution has been really, really slow. We've needed to adapt very slowly. And the curve since maybe post, just post-World War II, in fact, has been so steep. It's been really difficult for the brain, which is it needs thousands of years for evolution, for adaption, to like jump on board. But you see it with children. They adapt so quickly. So it's not impossible. I, I agree with you. It, it's, I think it's more of a decision because the mental capacity is there. The brain chemistry is there. All the tools are there. I think it's a willingness to engage. I, I think it's really interesting what you say about children and, and that willingness to engage. And I think one of the reasons sometimes people struggle to adapt is that maybe they've gone through an experience in the past or they know someone else who's gone through an experience. And as we get older, there are more of these, these hurdles in, our, in the way that, that, that we struggle to climb over when we try and adapt. Just to go off topic for, for um, just a moment, let's talk about sleep. So this is a very, very interesting topic for me because the, the, the clients and the patients that I work with, sleep is always an issue. First question is, can a device like um, your HRV monitoring device, like the bodyguard, pick up 
sleep issues, not necessarily sleep apnea, but can at least start the process on finding out why people either battle to fall asleep or stay asleep and what would be a, like a precursor to those problems? Yeah, sure. So, so we can definitely provide a whole host of information that look not just at the quantity of sleep, but the quality of sleep. Um, the devices I use, we don't necessarily, we, we wouldn't claim to be able to say this is the number of minutes you are in REM or, or theta sleep or delta sleep. We'll look at the overall quality of sleep. And I know there will be some devices that look at measurement from the wrist that will claim to, to look at some of the breakdown of sleep cycles. But um, I still think the only true way to do that is by wiring someone up with a yeah. whole load of electrodes over their brain, yeah. um, et cetera. Um, so yeah, we can definitely provide some really, really good detail on what is after all our most deliberate coping strategy. Yeah, I picked that up as well with the testing and you can definitely see if you run an experiment and you see if you have a glass of wine before bed, how that HRV changes when you sleep. It is, it's almost um, a definite. When you coach people, do you go into sleep much, sleep hygiene? What are your tips for getting um, a better quality of sleep so that you can be more resilient going forward in your day? Yeah, absolutely. Go into it. As I say, it's our most deliberate coping strategy, something you do for about 30% of our lives. So it is, and it's something that we can take more control of. So the, the basic tips I look at can be split into a number of groups. So the really obvious ones will be looking at things like um, you know, eating late, alcohol you mentioned, typically for every unit of alcohol, we'll probably see about one hour's worth of quality sleep being lost people might be fast asleep but the body's wow. having to work to deal with the toxicity of alcohol so we, we pick that up through through uh, heart rate variability yeah. um you know we'll, we'll look at the environmental factors so is it too cold too hot too light too noisy and of course some of those environmental factors are outside sometimes it's it's the person lying next to you who can be causing the noise or and, and those sorts of things uh, and one thing that I, I do spend a heck of a lot of time, particularly with my corporate clients, is talking to them about how they can potentially switch their mind off before they go to bed. Mm. Many people say, do you know what? My head hits the pillow and I fall asleep, but I wake up and I feel, you know, I still feel tired or I wake up at four o'clock in the morning and my mind is buzzing and I, I need to write stuff down. Yeah. So we spend quite a lot of time focusing on how can you switch your mind off as well as your body? So what are your top tips for switching your mind off? Because this is, this is a major problem for millions of people in this day and age. Sure. Well, so many people, I, it's a question I often ask people. I, I say, so what do you do to try? And I often get the answer, you know, I do a bit of reading or I watch some TV or I listen to music, etc. And those are all good ideas, but, but they're what I call the distraction therapies. They're not formally switching your mind off. They're just distracting it onto something else. So if I'm going through a really busy period of my life and I feel my mind is active, I'll be very deliberate. I have a, a book, blank book. I draw a line down the middle of the page and about 45 minutes before I go to bed, on the left-hand side of that line, I'll write down, what have I done today? Just some bullet points. It's not, it's not great big paragraphs, just some bullet points. And I normally look at it and I normally feel a bit better about life. You know, I've actually got that done and that done yep. and that done. And then on the right-hand side of the line, I'll write down what needs to be done tomorrow. I'm not in denial, but it's there. And then I'll slowly look at the book. Oh, sorry, I'll look at the book and I will slowly close it, typically with five deep breaths. And I'm just giving myself permission to switch my mind off. It's now time to sleep. So it's a deliberate, almost ritual, where yeah. you're giving your brain to say, 
I've got to do that tomorrow. You don't have to ruminate over it tonight. It's not going away. We won't forget. There it is. Now go to sleep. Exactly. And it's a proactive approach. I mean, I mentioned earlier, these people who, who tell me that I'm very good. I've got, a, I've got a pen and paper. So if I wake up at three or four o'clock in the morning, I can write things down. And I say, well, that's great. But wouldn't it be a good idea to write them down before you go to bed? So you don't wake up at four o'clock in the morning. Yep. Yeah, maybe, maybe that might just be the case. Yeah, you know, and so often it's just these little simple tips that make the biggest difference because we don't think of that until somebody says, maybe you should just preempt the problem instead of waiting for the problem to come up. That's excellent. I, I love that tip. I think that is, that is so useful. Just to go again off topic and onto a completely different subject, you work with athletes. You've been, I mean, that is central to, to where you started. You work with, with um, major cricket teams. You've done a lot of work on TV. Uh, I think I read in your bio that you were involved with Gladiators and a couple of other shows. What I find really fascinating, comp you know, if you look at the average person who's trying to run a marathon or who wants to improve their gains in a sport or in weightlifting, um, and they're giving it everything, they're doing the training, but they're not eating well and they're not sleeping. Um, and then you look at an athlete who spends half their life eating and sleeping with maybe just a third of their time training where, you know, the rest and recovery is actually where the, the, the secret source is. You know, as, as a professional who works with athletes, what advice can we give to people who are expecting their bodies to output what an athlete outputs, but aren't actually putting in what an athlete gets to make them perform like they do on, at a world standard. Yeah, I think, you know, wherever we are on the spectrum of sporting ability, some principles hold true. So, you know, we need to train both our technique and, and our underlying physiology and our mindset and all those sorts of things. But we also need to recover and look after ourselves. So I spent a lot of time, both at a professional level, and I often say to, you know, if, if you're talking to, for example, a footballer, um, they probably get paid quite well to recover. That's true. <laughs> um, they, you know, they're 168 hours in the week. They probably train and play football for about, I don't know, 12 of them. Exactly. Another 156 hours in the week that they need to look after themselves if they want to perform at their peak in those 12 hours. And I think it's fascinating that we monitor every single step that they make on the training field or on the, you know, or playing in a match, but we don't have the same idea of what goes on with the rest of their lives. I, I, I think that's. You know, that's absolutely profound that, you know, such a small period of time is, is, is actually the training and the, the being paid to recover and look after yourself is, it's like, it's a keyword. It's, but that should be true for all of us. You know, whether you are managing a major organization, you should be paid to look after yourself so you can manage that organization. And we don't think like that. We're not taught to even consider that. I think it's, it's, it's something that really should be addressed, not, not just for professional athletes. I think that would solve a lot of problems for people with regards to their stress levels and health and relationships and generally their happiness, if we thought about it that way. Yeah, I, I agree. And my story of uh, someone who I was coaching a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were looking at his data. And he was very much into his cycling. Um, you know, so this is not a professional cyclist. This is a, someone who works uh, in an office. And we were looking at his cycling data and he cycled every day and actually did quite a lot. You know, did his work. He went out and exercised. That's good. 
And I just sort of said, you know, what do you do after you've cycled? And he said, oh, I spent about 15 minutes looking after my bike and cleaning it down and, and just, just tw making tweaks here and there. I went, oh, that's good, that's good. And, and what do you do when it comes to looking after yourself? And the answer was nothing. Um, so it's interesting that we put so much more care and attention into these bits of metal and, and got a bit of rubber on the wheel. But the care and attention into the person who propels the machine was zero. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. And then when things break down as well, we just need to take a pull and hope for the best. And it's such a yeah, discord from, you know, if, if you have to just stop and think about it for five minutes, it doesn't make sense. We don't treat ourselves very well. And we expect so much out of our, you know, out of our lives, but we don't put in the work. Yeah. And we don't, or we let work rule us as opposed to us ruling the work yeah. is, a, is a phrase I often use. Yeah. So on your, on your website or on your blog, you once wrote um, an article called, I think it was perception versus reality or what we think we do versus what we actually do. And, yeah. you know, I see this all the time with the people I work with. We think we're doing it right until we start monitoring and recording. This is really what underpins most of our, our stress and misery in our lives is what we think we're doing versus what we should or what we are actually doing. Yeah, sure. So I mean, I'll just get, you know, a couple of couple of figures here. It's quite interesting. So when we monitor people, we always ask them some questions beforehand. They're very simple questions like, do you think you sleep enough? And, you know, do you think that you eat healthily? And do you feel energized, etc.? Those sorts of questions, 10 very simple questions. And it's really interesting to look at the, the potential alignment or the mismatch between people's responses and then the physiological or the objective data that we get. So last year I, I did some work with around about 500 NHS workers in the UK. And when they were asked, did they sleep enough? So like 22% said, yes, I do sleep enough. When we actually looked at their physiological data, we found that over 65% of them were sleeping for greater than seven hours a day. So there was quite a mismatch between that question and the actual physiological data. Similarly, we found it with exercise. 46% of them felt that they were doing enough exercise to be healthy. And by healthy, we mean, you know, like the 10,000 steps or five lots of 30 minutes. So we're not talking sort of triathlons and, and marathons and that sort of stuff. So 46% of them felt they were doing enough physical activity to be healthy. But again, when we looked at their physiological data, we found that only 22% were. And these people are, are people who are trained in healthcare. People who are trained in healthcare are probably the worst for looking after themselves because, again, it's, it's about everybody else. You see this with nursing staff. Your, your breast cancer rates with, with nurses, especially ICU nurses, is probably the, one of the highest in the world. They're so busy looking after everybody else and paying no attention to their own health. Um, shift work as well because you are working diametrically or absolutely against our natural circadian rhythm when you're doing shift work and the repercussions um, when you're not going into natural sleep rhythms is detrimental for the immune system yeah i, I totally agree I and mean, i can't remember the exact figure but it was frightening there was a study that was done in india that looked at shift working and life expectancy and if you work variable shifts i, I can't remember it's five or seven years i have to be honest there but it, it was a significant part of your life that you might be missing out on. Now, I think we also have to accept that shift working happens. You know, shift working will always happen. But how good are companies at investing 
and helping pay people understand the behaviors that are going to allow them to do the shift work effectively and have uh, the quality of life away from work too. So yeah, circadian rhythms comes up in conversations and looking at sleep routines to try and improve circadian rhythm and some of the other factors, you know, environmental factors such as sunlight. Also, yeah, but these will come up in conversation. I don't think anybody working in any multinational who travels um, a lot has has any kind of synchronization when it comes to to sleep habits and, and circadian rhythms, unless they make a point of it and they're acutely aware of it. The problem is the the disease profiles we see in cases like that, um, your diabetes, your heart disease, all those avoidable diseases of lifestyle and the, the the research that's coming out now with that connection to sleep and circadian rhythms is staggering because it's also something we actually can control um if we if we make a, a make it into a priority so yeah it's quite it's quite an astounding situation we've we've found ourselves in i often i often talk to people about this balancing act between the negotiables and the non-negotiables in life so it could be that you do have to get on a plane and you do have to travel to the States. That might be a non-negotiable. It's part of your job. But the negotiable thing is, do you have to have that glass of wine whilst you're sitting on, on the plane? Absolutely. Do you, are you really strict about your hydration and your pre-hydration before you fly in afterwards? Do you try and get some daylight and exercise when you're on arrival as soon as you can? You know, there's so many things that we can take control of, but people seem to ignore. And um, it's not because the information isn't out there, because it is. There are tricks and tips and techniques. What are your top, let's call it three small tips that you, that anybody can really just get stuck into and work on today that will change their health outcomes in the future? I might just give one if that's all right, Nikki. That's so, because it's a big one. But I think if you spend some time to understand yourself and what makes you happy. Because if you can understand yourself a bit better and you understand what makes you feel content at both a psychological, a physical, uh, an emotional and environmental level, then you can start to align some of the actions in your life to it. So people often come and see me and say, I want to be healthy. And my first question back is, well, why? Unless there's an understanding of what your real underlying intent and purpose is, whether it's getting fitter, whether it's losing weight, whether it's just being healthy, whether it's looking at whatever it is, it's a tough one not to crack. But if we can always align an action and out, output to an internal desire, then there's a better chance of people succeeding. So yep. that would be my tip. I think that's brilliant. It's, there's nothing worse than, than doing something that you, you hate and it's not creating some kind of reward chemistry. I think the trick is for a lot of people to even understand what makes them happy first place. You know, it's mm. so subjective. I'll be happy when I have money or I'll be happy when I, I'm in a relationship, but it's, it's actually, that's not even the question. It's, it's what puts you at ease within yourself, not externally, it's internally. And it needs to speak to our values as well, because if health isn't part of the value system, it's really tricky to try and get those behaviors to change. Yeah, I often, I often challenge people and I ask them to come up with their own personal mission statement. Companies are quite good at coming up with mission statements. But if you were to describe what would, you know, a couple of sentences, three or four sentences that sum up how you want to live your life, what would it be? I think it's a really valuable question we all need to ask ourselves. And if we go back full circle and, and think about where HRV fits into this and the assessments that we do, 
I tell you what, the, the assessments that we do, because we're looking at piecing together the multiple jigsaws of life over a four or five day period, and that might seem quite small in the whole concept of life, but gee, it opens up some really powerful conversations. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, you know, a sample size like that, especially when for a change for many people where they've never really observed what goes on in their lives and now they're diarizing everything over a four-day period really opens, it can open your eyes. You, you know, all those unconscious habits and behaviors are put into the conscious mind. And I think anything that triggers you to be more aware is going to be massively valuable in the long term for your health and your happiness. Absolutely. Absolutely. Simon, thank you so much for your time. This is really food for thought. I love that mission statement. To design a, a mission statement for your life is, is a great way to, to kick off any healthy venture um, to tie it up with your, with your values and change your behaviors. I'm going to pop all of your, your social media and your, your website links onto the, the show notes. And if anybody is interested in finding out more about HRV, uh, where they can get hold of you, I know you do a lot of talks at companies, by all means, all the contact details will be there. Well, thank you for inviting me, Nikki. This episode of the Reinvent Health podcast supports Free to Run SA, a community-based South African initiative to make recreational running and walking safer for everyone. By partnering with a number of private security companies throughout the country, Free to Run is on a mission to create awareness and keep all South Africans safer in their neighborhoods. Visit Free to Run SA on Facebook to find out how you too can create a safer suburb.